Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. To all who, who shall see these presents, greetings. On behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Brutecast. Our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Nate Janikin, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, United States Marine Corps, or any other agency of the U.S. government. We will also be recording this webcast for the benefit of those in our community of interest who could not join us today, so we ask that we, you keep your own webcams off to help us stream smoothly. At the conclusion of our discussion, we will have a question and answer session, so if you have a question, just type it in the group chat and I'll go through them in the order received. The movie We Were Soldiers opens with the Battle of Mengyang Pass, which occurred in 1954, which is 11 years before the subject of the movie, and it shows the massacre of Group Mobile 100 by the Viet Minh during the first Indochina War. Soon after, the film shows Mel Gibson playing Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore, studying a book on the battle along with that of Little Bighorn, where a previous commander of the battalion he was now leading, George Custer, was killed. Hollywood used these as foreshadowing, but it's also an easy to see depiction of an officer studying outside of PME, outside of doctrine, to improve their mind and prepare for what's to come. In 2013, General Mattis wrote, thanks to my reading, I have never been caught flat-footed by any situation, never at a loss for how any problem has been addressed successfully or unsuccessfully before. It doesn't give me all the answers, but it lights what it is often a dark path ahead. To show another perspective of, of why lifelong learning should be important to every Marine, regardless of rank and position. Today, we're going to look at Winston Churchill, but as a younger man before 1940 and his prolific reading and study habits. With that, I'm going to welcome our guest, Dr. Chris Harmon. Dr. Harmon is a distinguished fellow with the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, and his connection to Marine Corps PME extends to the early 90s, giving annual lectures to the Amphibious Warfare School, now Expeditionary Warfare School. He later taught courses on Churchill as a war leader at the Command and Staff College, where he was a full-time professor and directed the core course on strategy. He also provided annual lectures to students attending the School of Advanced Warfighting. Dr. Harmon is a professor at the Institute of War Politics in Washington, D.C., and an academic advisor to the International Churchill Society, contributing to its journal Finest Hour on such subjects as coalition warfare, General Allen Brooks' diaries, and war termination. The Naval War College publishes monograph on Churchill and the moral question of World War II area bombing. And for the last three years, Dr. Harmon has been researching and writing a book on Winston Churchill. Sir, welcome back to the broadcast, uh, and I'd like to turn the floor over to you. Well, thank you, Major. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back doing something again with, with Krulak Center, where I remain a fellow. Um, as you said, uh, the U.S. Marines have this long tradition of urging each other to, to stay lifelong learners, uh, and there's good reasons for that. Uh, and today, we, we can reflect on a great leader who had that instinct and that conviction, uh, the cavalry officer turned politician and statesman, Winston S. Churchill. Um, Born in Britain in 1874, he went to some good schools, including a prep school called Harrow. And as a youngster, he was fascinated by toy soldiers and battle stories. And early on, he aspired to become a military man. But while some people only have dreams or fantasies, this was one of those kids who lost no time in doing what he needed to do to fulfill his dream. So when still in school, he actually wrote a three or 30 
30,000 word essay, 30,000 words on the campaigns of Marlborough, uh, his ancestor, and the man for whom a grateful country built Blenheim Palace in England. Uh, he also wrote another long essay uh, for a different schoolmaster when he was a boy, an imaginary war between Britain and Russia. The battlegrounds included the Crimea, and Churchill would have known all about that because just a generation before, uh, British forces had fought in the Crimea, and that's the scene of the famous but failed charge of the Light Brigade. All Britishers knew a line or two from Alfred Tennyson's poem, about, you know, cannons to the right of them, cannons to the left of them, and so on, uh, into the jaws of death. Well, for school projects like that, that extensive, involving that much thought and writing, um, it's clear we're dealing with someone doing a great deal of reading. Uh, so right away, we can be a little skeptical of the fun he had with us when he writes his autobiography, My Early Life, published in 1930. Uh, and there are a lot of passages on his failures as a student. Um, he ridicules his own performance. Uh, he makes jokes about how much difficulty he had with mathematics, even though a reader in, in 1930 would have known he'd, he'd spent five years by then as chancellor of the exchequer, so he could manage math when he had to. Uh, he admitted in his autobiography to being terrible at Greek and having troubles with German. Uh, his French was also fairly poor, but that part he uh, didn't admit to. He, uh, there are a lot of interesting report cards from those years, and it showed him to be a singular discipline problem. Uh, he was a tough kid. But there's something else, and that's what my research has really brought home to me, and that's how much reading he was doing on the side, the, the unassigned things, the number of books he actually read uh, seriously in his first 25 or 30 years is incredible. Um, histories, um, adventure stories, uh, classic novels, uh, poetry, uh, like the poetry about ancient Rome. Uh, Shakespeare's plays, he knew well a lot of them by the time he was middle-aged, and he could quote very long passages from many of the, of the Shakespeare plays. He loved uh, Henry V, the great war story, for example. Uh, he read battle histories and campaign histories and political histories. Uh, he read volumes of speeches as well. Uh, by Burke Cochran, for example, an American congressman from New York who was a mentor to Churchill, um, and another volume by his father. His father had been active in the House of Commons uh, before Winston's time. Uh, it's fair to ask, uh, how about his learning? Very well, he's doing all this reading. Um, is he learning? And it's, it seems clear that he was. He even wrote a few of the authors that he was interested in. As a boy, he wrote to Henry Ryder Haggard, who did adventure stories for kids. Uh, and as a young man, he actually wrote to Rudyard Kipling, the famous teller of tales of the British Empire in both poetry and prose. And both those authors wrote back to, to young Winston. Uh, he also knew Mark Twain. He had a full set of all of Mark Twain's books inscribed to him from a meeting that they had. 
Uh, Churchill, most interestingly, for an, an academic like me, he even wrote book reviews. Um, there's many of them. But one very long essay, for example, is in is in explora, exploration of and praise of um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And he did forewords to books by authors that he admired or books that were about war that interested him. Well, at about the stage that most people start thinking about college these days, uh, Churchill examined for Sandhurst, the military academy. He was still rather unconventionally educated, and it, it took him a couple of examination courses to actually get in. The, the family had to hire him a tutor, but they made the right call, and it was worth it. He, he became a graduate later, about number 20 out of over 130, I think, uh, at Sandhurst in his class. The curricula there was focused on tactics, fortifications, uh, reading grounds and maps and uh, some military history. Uh, Churchill really liked the riding all the young men did in the afternoons. He was very good on the back of a horse. Uh, and later out in India, in fact, he would be part of a champion polo team. All of this is good training, of course, for the business of war. And it showed, for example, when he took part in a successful charge at Omdurman uh, in the Sudan. Uh, well, that's schooling at Sandhurst, which is just west of, of London. It's running between then about 1894 and five for him, maybe a year and a half in that school. He supplemented the education they were giving him by becoming a regular at a local bookstore. Um, titles he bought there included E.B. Hamley's Operations of War, Explained and Illustrated, um, a series of books by a Prussian named Prince Kraft, uh, letters on infantry, letters on cavalry, letters on artillery. Um, a note to his father shows he was reading Lieutenant Colonel C.B. Moyne on infantry fire tactics. And he was buying histories of, of, the, big, of the big war, too. Uh, one recent one, Franco-Prussian War, 1870-71, was interesting to him. And that would have of stirred his, his uh, knowledge of Bismarck, the famous Prussian statesman. Uh, Bismarck transforms modern Germany, of course, and, and by doing so creates a rather uh, distant martial threat to some other Europeans. Uh, but Churchill was also intrigued with another aspect of Bismarck, uh, which was his interest in social welfare and labor schemes. Uh, he mentions Bismarck by name in a number of his speeches in those days uh, as a young MP. Uh, and, uh, and he worked in Parliament, as with David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, uh, to get legislation passed on labor issues and on social welfare issues. So the influence of Bismarck was a was mix of, of that and the Marshall. Now, another great interest of this young politician uh, and middle-aged man, too, is Napoleon. He read continuously about Napoleon, and he aspired to write a biography of him, although he never began that properly. Uh, but as an adult, uh, he bought at least 200 books in French and English concerning Napoleon and his campaigns. Uh, and he seems to have come to him uh, to think of him about uh, about uh, as a as an enlightened despot, perhaps we could say, uh, 
obviously not the solution for British problems at home, um, but he respected him and he recoiled when people compared Napoleon and Hitler uh, because he did have a, a higher view. I suppose in part, uh, Churchill was interested in the Frenchman's law code. Um, that was famous and it was seen as liberal and, and traces of it are still evident in uh, Louisiana state law. And certainly he loved the drama and the war dramas of the French warrior. And uh, even if as a statesman, he proved flawed, he kept a small bust of Napoleon on his desk and his ministries as he moved from one job to another. Um, and he built this book collection and he amassed a, a, just a terrific knowledge of Napoleon's efforts. Uh, once on a train in Italy, um, he was among friends uh, talking about Napoleon as they passed through countryside where, where Napoleon had come uh, into Italy. And of course, Churchill could be quite garrulous. Uh, and he was in the middle of a long monologue and it was very sophisticated uh, and it was not short. Um, and his wife, Clementine, interestingly enough, was, was dozing in the cabin behind a screen and she awoke uh, and she listened for a bit and then she asked from behind the screen, is Winston reading or just talking? Uh, so hers was a man who really knew his Napoleon. Um, one of the history books about the composition of those famous World War II books Churchill wrote, uh, this author called his own book, In Command of History. Uh, this is a man who loved history and, and wrote it. Uh, he was quite interested in our civil war. Uh, at age 12, we have a letter about this. Uh, he knows that this fellow Ulysses Grant has done memoirs. And he, in a letter to his mom, uh, asks for his 13th birthday to have General Grant's History of the American War illustrated. Uh, now, I don't know if there ever was an illustrated uh, edition of that or even if he was given the book, but uh, Grant's personal memoirs are certainly uh, of a high order and are credited with being among the best uh, war memoirs. He looked over his time at various campaign studies and histories. Uh, he got to know quite a lot. Uh, he didn't just, for example, read Douglas Southall Freeman's volumes on General Lee. He actually came over and did a battlefield tour once with, uh, with Freeman himself. So he developed some pretty serious knowledge about Gettysburg uh, and other battles. And once when he was up there in Pennsylvania on site, um, there was a local guide speaking and Churchill ventured to correct him on a small point. And uh, one of the historians says it turned out later that, that Churchill was right about his little intervention. Well, he loved, uh, he loved memoirs. Uh, he read many war memoirs, uh, Ludendorff, uh, Marshal von Hindenburg, General Ferdinand Foch. Um, lots of those turn up on the lists as we start to build out the list of, of what he was reading. Um, he was less interested, it seems, in theory, in, in military theory. Uh, now, before he was 35, uh, he did own a copy of Clausewitz on War in English, but I don't have any evidence that he read it or, or ever referred to Clausewitz at all in writing or in speaking. Uh, 
many opportunities for getting into some Clausewitz uh, were present, of course, uh, before World War I, uh, when he was uh, often attending uh, war maneuvers, as in Germany, um, in the early 20th century. Uh, as he got more and more concerned by about 1909 about the Kaiser's militarism. Um, and Clausewitz was known in England after 1870. So uh, we might think he, he would certainly have encountered him uh, in print, but we can't prove it. Another interesting case is Alfred Thayer Mahan. So there is a little more evidence that he read some Mahan. We know he inherited from his father two of those famous books about the influence of sea power that Mahan wrote. Uh, he praised Mahan's work, that's the most revealing thing we know, uh, in a formal memo from the Admiralty to Royal Navy officers. He was displeased a bit by their, their narrowness, he thought. Extremely well-trained, but not well-educated. Now, there's a distinction General Gray used to make all the time among Marines. So Churchill was, was interested in these officers broadening their education beyond things like, say, gunnery or navigation and getting to know a lot more about the wider aspects of war. And, and again, he told them over and over again, uh, one way to do that is to study history, study history. Um, there's another sea power theorist beyond the hand that he, that he would have known personally. Um, the Britisher named Julian Corbett. They weren't friends, but they were certainly uh, acquainted. That seems uh, evident. And he read plenty of Corbett's histories, um, as, for example, uh, the history of English naval operations in the Mediterranean. And uh, that would have been really instructive for any fellow who had to live through two world wars and, and, and in high cabinet posts in, in both those wars when, when so much was being done by British uh, forces uh, in, in the Mediterranean. Uh, just before the war, just before the Great War, 1911, of course, Julian Corbett releases some principles of maritime strategy, which is still studied today at the Naval War College and Marine Corps University and such. It really lays out uh, the, the, the British way of war, as it was called, and a lot of wide themes like uh, how the sea is used in communications and in deterrence roles, um, supplying army forces ashore, that sort of thing. Corbett also wrote three volumes of the official naval history of the Great War. And Churchill certainly knew those. He, uh, he had every reason to. He was very interested, for example, to know how Julian Corbett was going to represent his own office and, and his role in, in Gallipoli, which was a, a thing that, of course, cost him his job at one point during World War I. So we see a kind of uh, formidable self-education going here. And and Churchill brings this reading, this study to his many roles in politics, uh, to his roles in international affairs, uh, to his war making, um, and to his own writing. Um, he, he, he did six volumes called The World Crisis, just about World War I, 
It involved tremendous research and very wide study of all kinds of continental authors. Um, and really no person in Britain at that time was, uh, had such a strong combination in these three areas, um, holding high offices, uh, war in the trenches and in the field when he was a lieutenant colonel, um, and writing the same history of the war. It's really prodigious. Uh, and in fact, if you, if you haven't ever seen the world crisis, it would be enjoyable to go by a library sometime and pick up volume one, um, which is just terrific history. Uh, now, it's vivid and kind of exciting. And for that reason, scholars are kind of skeptical of it. Um, and they have some other reasons for skepticism, but but I can personally say I, I don't fully agree with them. I think it's a, a very good history. It's certainly personal history, and that's its own kind of, of genre, personal history. Um, so uh, we can see more clearly now, we can see how this man was elevated by, by grim global circumstances uh, and other things into the prime ministry in 1940, but that he was not there uh, because of how he postured with a cigar or or how much his drinking buddies were amused by his one-liners, as good as those were. Um, we see a man who relentlessly prepared himself uh, with great fidelity to be a great man, in fact, uh, doing the long hours of, of, of intellectual preparation, uh, developing a, a great mind. Uh, to be ready for great tasks. Uh, he read uh, also to prepare for his own writing uh, and to prepare for his political life. Um, and he read so that he could write, and he did write. He wrote over 50 books. Uh, ultimately, he won a Nobel Prize. He never quit reading. Um, so he held all those jobs in cabinet, and even as a premier twice, he was continuously reading. Um, I don't know how many people could be simultaneously uh, minister for defense and prime minister and still be reading a novel hot off the press, but uh, somehow Churchill did occasionally. Um, in 1942, the famous American, John Steinbeck, published a book called The Moon is Down. And The Moon is Down is a sort of fanciful illustration of how a guerrilla war might be started by people under occupation by an enemy that sounded a lot like the Nazis. Uh, and Churchill read this immediately as it came off the press, and he pushed it around to his staff with a recommendation. Uh, we have the printed message by which he did that. It has one typed word. It just says, good. Um, there, right there, is, is perhaps the, the best and shortest book review John Steinbeck ever got. Um, uh, everyone on Churchill's immediate staff fully understood uh, that this was yet another prompt for what this uh, minister kept telling them about to, to set Europe ablaze underneath the occupation by the Axis powers. In a more wide sense, uh, fostering guerrilla wars was, was something he understood uh, it was part of his strategy in the war, but he also learned a lot about guerrilla war from his good friend T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. In 1926, Lawrence of Arabia gave him a copy of his brand new book called Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And 
Churchill was in Paris and he sat down in his hotel and stayed there for several days while he worked through this massive book by T.E. Lawrence about the guerrilla wars of World War I. Um, now, lastly, it is interesting to say, well, what, what did he not read? So maybe he didn't read Clausewitz and, and, and maybe that wasn't all that necessary for him to. There are some fascinating parallels between his own thought and, and the deep work done in on war by, by the Prussian. Um, uh, Clausewitz himself emphasizes that uh, beyond study, there are plenty of good ways to learn about war. And, and I guess Churchill did all of them. He, he served in the cavalry. He served in the infantry. Uh, he made private staff rides with really expert analysts and battlefield historians and local guides. Uh, he spent hours and hours with commanders, interviewing them, talking to them about their wars. Um, he, he went aboard ships and questioned the officers and the men relentlessly about their chores and what their expectations were and, and how they saw impending uh, conflicts. Um, and then there's the, the formal military schools. Um, Churchill did not deprecate those. Uh, after World War II, he comes over and makes an appearance in a big room in the Pentagon with American and British officers of the highest ranks. And he has great praise at that moment uh, for the American organization during the war and the American professional military education during the war. It, it, had, it had developed at warp speed during war to meet the needs of war. Uh, and he told them, among other things, quote, I shall always urge that the tendency in the future should be to prolong the courses of instruction at the colleges rather than to abridge them. That's a 9 March 1946. Uh, so I'll, I'll halt myself there and we can turn to your discussion points and, and your questions. So I think the first thing I wanted to, to ask, you know, as we're talking through everything that he's read, you know, you touched on um, him stepping down, uh, whether it was Forster on his own after Gallipoli. How much of his uh, self-education came out and influenced the way he dealt with others? And I think, you know, the way I'm comparing it is, is, you know, there's stories of Hitler being called the, uh, the Bohemian Corporal uh, by some of the, the more senior generals on the staff, you know, just the way he was heavy handed in, you know, how things were run. Um, was that kind of similar with Churchill, seeing as how, you know, his military experience was far less than, you know, say Montgomery or Alan Brooke? Yes, well, uh, he, um, he, he uh, could be quarrelsome with military colleagues, to be sure. Uh, he could also be very indulgent. Uh, he would, he, if, if a man knew his stuff and, and was just fresh out of the trenches or something, uh, Churchill, when he was a commander in, in Belgium, uh, he would sit and listen for a long time. Uh, he could do that as well as, as well. He was more famous for, for talking. Um, he was uh, a micromanager, which irritated some beneath him and some above him. No question. He, he's definitely a micromanager. Um, and uh, there were plenty of people who thought that got him into trouble. For example, he had an appetite for military uh, and secret intelligence, and he read an immense amount of raw intel. 
And the experts would always warn you that, you know, you might not have your perspective correct when you're reading the raw intercepts, but he read them anyway and, and cross-questioned people about them. Um, with the big generals, there's this kind of, of generalization we can, we can make, I think. Uh, when uh, he pressed them frequently and sometimes relentlessly and to a point of, of, of real irritation, and exhaustion, especially at night, because he worked uh, long hours and took a short nap during the day. So there were conferences at the end of the day, 11 p.m., 12 p.m., you know, one o'clock, and we're still talking about, you know, the Eastern Mediterranean or something. And some of the generals were just found this death. Um, so he did irritate some people. Alan Brooks' portrait of him is most vivid. Uh, Imagine a partnership that intimate, uh, three or four years there where they're working in harness all the time. Um, at certain points, Alan Brook praised him very highly, but what gets into the into the academic literature is the journal entries that he made privately, I mean privately, where he expressed a deep frustration with Churchill, sometimes uh, anger uh, and and sometimes contempt. Interestingly, Major, uh, his, his contempt that he would show sometimes for the prime minister uh, also showed for a lot of others. Um, he did not respect George Marshall. Uh, he did not respect a number of the Brits uh, in senior positions. When they had a big conference with uh, Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese at one point, he was appalled at their lack of preparedness and their lack of kind of strength as to what their views on, on, on what should be done in the, in the Pacific theater. So there were some sharp things said by Churchill. They're quoted all the time. But he, he, Alan Brook in his diary said a lot of other things very privately that were very strong, too. Uh, they, had, they had great respect, and, and it was a great, a great team, actually. So I think my follow-up question is, is, you know, if, you know, Churchill was a, you know, sounds like a, a voracious leader or a reader uh, and studier and kind of had a, an eclectic mix of things that he enjoyed to learn about and read about. Is there anybody comparable uh, on the U.S. side that maybe had the same attitudes towards it? Or did he view folks who didn't do that um, in a different way? You know, someone who didn't maybe read as much or study as much. Well, he um, uh, he he couldn't couldn't have known Jim Jim Mattis, which is too bad because uh, I've seen Mattis lecture a few times, and he certainly deserves his reputation for a famously educated, widely educated person. Um, yeah, the uh, the the the, sh the partnerships he shared with um, uh, in the field and in the offices show that he did like to speak about books a great deal. Uh, for example, he was very interested in the World War I poets, uh, Siegfried Sassoon, uh, Rupert Brooke. Brooke actually worked in the Royal Naval Division once, which Churchill had set up, but then Brooke was killed in the Mediterranean, and Sassoon had a famously hard war and was very mentally wrought by it. 
he read their poems and uh, especially through a a uh, a real literature type a real uh, guy really wired into academic circles in london at the highest levels where they translated foreign books and so forth a man named eddie marsh edward marsh uh, was a close friend of churchill and they talked about literature and uh, they go to uh, musics music hall things and operas and and opening nights at the theater and such um, so he did keep a wide circle um, interesting story about the uh, rupert brook business the uh, uh he was he or sassoon rather his story was he he did know him and Sassoon's poems were not always uh, uh, predictable for a soldier. Some of them had a very strong anti-war tinge. Um, and, and Churchill knew, for example, when a new volume came out of Sassoon, he, he pretty well memorized the whole book. Uh, and at times, this was you know still in the late stages and right after uh, World War I, uh, he, he would recite these. Uh, and when he was sitting around, you know, having a drink with people. Uh, and at one point, his brother warned him, saying, you know, the command might not really like you to be quoting this this kind of lefty poet. And Churchill dismissed the whole idea. He thought that was silly. He thought it was, uh, he, he said, I'm not afraid of, of Siegfried Sassoon. I'm afraid of people who don't read. <laughs> so uh, he, he was much more widely educated than most people. Um, he had the energy and, and he used the energy to keep to keep reading. Um, sometimes we see stories that even after our, our people graduate from college, you know, they don't read books after that. He, he did the opposite. He he kept right on going. So I think that's a good segue into the first question that we have from the chat. So Nayla says, uh, I've always been fascinated that Hitler did not apparently study Napoleon as he made the exact same mistake Napoleon did when he came to attacking Russia, the Soviets in the winter. Is there any evidence about how Winston Churchill felt about Hitler following Napoleon's faulty decision-making when it came to Russia, uh, given what you said about you know how much Churchill knew about Napoleon? Yes, uh, there's a, a funny speech that Churchill made uh, after uh, Barbarossa got Germany into so much trouble. Uh, and he waits until sort of the news has come through and the losses on the front are clear and the weather is horrific. Uh, and he makes a public speech in which he says that uh, uh, that Hitler, uh, for all of his self-proclaimed genius, didn't seem to be able to track weather at all. Uh, and, and he said that in, in Russia, uh, there is cold, there is snow, and all that. Uh, we all read about it in school, but Hitler didn't know. He was very loosely educated. Um, and with that remark, he, he dismisses the folly of what, uh, Napole what uh, Churchill or what, what Hitler had done. I don't know um, specifically what he thought was the explanation for Napoleon's venture. Uh, there's a good section on that in, in the book uh, on, on logistics that's uh, commonly read at command and staff colleges. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a difficult question to see how, how Napoleon could make such, a, uh, such a, a, a blunder. The other thing I would say about the relations between the, the, two, the two men at the top uh, is that they were acutely aware of one another. 
Churchill was on a staff ride in Munich in about 1932, uh, looking at materials for his book on the Duke of Marlborough. And he had the chance to, um, to meet Hitler. A liaison came forward. Uh, this was a man within the Nazi group. Um, uh, his name was Hans Stengel. Uh, my father was a historian, actually met him after the war briefly. And this fellow tried to act as a liaison and bring Churchill and Hitler together for a meeting. Uh, and they had it planned. And then, the, and then uh, Churchill told Homstengel, uh, you can tell your man from me that this uh, persecution of the Jewish business uh, is, is, is bad business. Um, and uh, I suppose he thought he was you know, making it clear what he was going to talk about in part in the meeting. Uh, Hitler then canceled the meeting in Munich. It never occurred. And um, uh, Churchill noted later, he said, and, and, and that was Hitler's last chance to meet me. <laughs> you know, Chur Churchill certainly <laughs> had a considerable uh, ego. Uh, Hitler is acutely aware of Churchill's views. And he raves against him a number of times in public, which is really quite striking. So there's this kind of paradox between the utter hatred he showed and, and repeatedly talking about him in public and private, uh, and also the kind of German propaganda line, which was to dismiss him as a has-been, a mere member of parliament, not in government in the 30s, in his wilderness years and all that. Uh, and so you, you have that sort of uh, odd paradox, uh, but the, the hatred was clear because Hitler could see just as well as a typical voter in Britain can see that this was the man who was the answer to appeasement. And so, of course, Hitler hated him. So we'll take a, a, a different vein of questioning here. Um, so Albert asks, and I, I think this will be uh, kind of twofold we'll get we'll get your your viewpoint on the on the question and then we'll see if you know maybe churchill had some viewpoints on it as well so albert asks uh what recommendations or tips do you have for retaining the discipline to frequently read he says i read digital books pdfs and reports often but i'm in a if i work more and i take more home i can buy more physical books feedback loop that means my physical bookshelf grows far faster than my reading of the books on them uh so did you know Churchill offer any recommendations or tips for how to how to do that? You know how he balanced yeah. reading yes, he it did. and his jobs. <laughs> he did. Uh, he he uh, bought books frequently, and even when he was in debt personally, it was an investment that he made, uh, and he he was willing to buy them. Uh, he did more of that than he did borrowing, which would have been the cheap way. And one reason was that he really felt like you should be building a library as a professional and, and not just reading. Um, he, uh, uh, he, he kept books that he bought. He bought more than he could read. Um, he um, jumped at chances. One time he was in France and he won uh, about, uh, oh, I forget the amount. He won a lot of money at the gambling tables at a casino. And he just left with this money and he went to two Paris bookstores and he bought something like 250 books in French and in English. Um, 
And in those years of kind of 1905, six, seven, eight, he was buying a great deal. He had a, a parliamentary salary, which was measly, but he had a great income from writing because he was becoming a popular writer. He had uh, troubled himself to do a bunch of books already by age 30 or so. Um, and so he had some royalty income and he wrote for the popular press. So this is the kind of money he spent. Uh, he did have more books than he read. Uh, he would buy collected sets, for example. If he, he really liked a particular novelist, he might just buy the whole collected works. Uh, so sometimes, as with Mark Twain, we think he read the whole thing. Other times, he might have just had a collection that only read uh, a couple. Uh, he had an advantage you and I don't, which is that he was famous. And so people sent him books. Um, the publisher of a, a new novel or history might send it to just hoping he'd do a review or say the right thing at his men's club or something like that. H.G. Um, uh, Wells had a relationship like this with Churchill. Uh, Wells would get him copies or, or Wells' publisher would because even though Wells was a socialist and they used to argue in public, uh, he knew that being being mentioned by Churchill was was great press. Um, uh, Churchill, for his part, respected Wells and owned all his books. And by the way, uh, there's one of them from the early 20th century, which tells the story of uh, the tank. Uh, well, it's in a it's in an essay as well in a magazine. H.G. Wells, the futurist, the time machine man wrote a, a story in which he basically laid out the fundamentals of what a tank would be. Churchill found it compelling, and when he was in the Admiralty, he used those ideas to push prototypes of tanks. Uh, he testified at length in 1919 about this. Uh, so if you've read a, a World War I history that ignores that, that's an important omission. He's, he, he contributed made in a major way to the creation of the British tank. Um, but as to the problem of too many books, uh, Churchill knew it well. He had a visitor once that came to his London place, and there were so many books stacked all over. The fellow wrote later, he didn't know where to sit. He said, even on the bed, there were these books all over. So we know he didn't read everything. Uh, Churchill commented on this once. He said, even if you don't have time, uh, enjoy your books, shelve them, put them in an order you like, open them and see what falls to the page, uh, enjoy them as you can, and then put them back uh, in places that you like and enjoy possessing them. Um, the only thing I would add to that is that uh, I do see the reason to buy books and keep them. Uh, I mark mine up a great deal. I even sometimes start a kind of primitive index in the back so that I can have a good resource and a quick a quick uh, fix for uh, something I'm hunting. Uh, and I believe in, in owning them and marking them up, although it is true that with the newest web-based stuff, you can, you can highlight uh, on an e-copy, so that's possible too. It's an advantage Churchill didn't have. Well, I think that the interesting part about some of those applications as well is something you highlight, you know, potentially could show up and you can see like how many people highlighted a similar passage. Uh, so you can kind of see where other folks are, are stand on that as well. I think the answer to Albert's question ultimately is uh, just keep buying books and just build more bookshelves, uh, buy a second house with a bigger basement. It seems like that's that was that's the route Ch Churchill would have taken as well. I would add, uh, Paul, I'd add one thing. 
I once had a conversation with an academic in the uh, George C. Marshall Center in Germany, another American. We were both over there running programs. I ran a counterterrorism program of studies for a while there. Um, and her greatest regret in her life was that in the move over there, her husband had persuaded her that these darn books she had weighed so much, they really should sell them first. So she had a beautiful collection of German literature in German, and she sold it off. And when she was in Germany serving there, uh, she, she regretted that very badly. So yes, are books too heavy? Yes. Are they too expensive? Yes. But we want to keep them anyway. <laughs> Uh, so I, I did have uh, one question while we wait for some more coming into the chat. So looking at, um, you know, there were a lot of movies that came out post-World War II. Um, one of them that I was thinking of in my head was uh, The Finest Hour, the 1964 documentary that came out a few months uh, before he passed away. You know, being such a, a huge history buff, um, you know, how did he view movies like that that were supposed to be historically based and that one specifically being about him. Um, I'm not sure about that one in particular, but I can say that um, he loved movies. Uh, he saw one um, probably five or six times a week at least. Uh, he had a, a little theater built uh, into one or two of the places he worked or lived so that he could watch on a, on a serious screen. And they would get copies, and then you had, of course, you had to run the film, so you had to have a projector uh, and a person who could do that. But for example, it was routine in his um, working days to, even during the war, to to hold a dinner, uh, in, in which a lot of business would get covered. But then late in the evening, they might well watch a film. Um, it was hard on some of his generals because sometimes after the film, he still wanted to work, but. Um, he would see many of them. He he loved that Hamilton Woman, which is a movie set in Napoleonic period um, uh, about a great uh, British admiral. Uh, and he loved Henry V. And there were quite a few other war films that he liked a, a great deal. But he also watched other things. He watched some claptrap. I mean, he loved... Uh, he loved uh, things like, you know, the Marx Brothers, uh, if, or of that of that caliber. Um, he was personally a friend of Charlie Chaplin. Uh, Chaplin visited Chartwell, and uh, they talked about film. And actually, Churchill wrote or co-wrote a couple of film scripts, including uh, one or two on a king, and uh, and one on uh, on Lawrence. He hoped to see a great film come out on Lawrence. Now, that never appeared, uh, but it did later, um, as, as everyone knows, the Peter O'Toole rendition, a story like that was a long time coming. There were quite a few efforts after Lawrence's death uh, in the 30s or so to, to kind of create a master, masterful big life picture. And most of them never came to fruition, although one or two did. He was very uh, close to to close to T. E. Lawrence and respected him greatly. Um, one of the things that's most often said about Churchill is that he 
uh, made a mistake, made after another mistake uh, in the Middle East after World War I. Um, I don't think that the greatest book on that, uh, A Peace to End All Peace by David Frompkin is, is quite so critical of Churchill, but a lot of people are critical of Churchill on the Middle East. But it's worth remembering that he, while he helped draw boundaries, which some thought arbitrary, uh, he was working with T.E. Lawrence. Uh, he was working with Gertrude Bell. He was working with some world-class experts on the Middle East. So the, the British were, were not untutored as to what their policy interests were and, and how they were trying to sort out what happened. Uh, it was awkward because the collapse of the Ottoman Empire had everyone trying to get uh, their piece of the pie. So the Brits had a, a difficult time with that. But the uh, close relationship with the famous author T.E. Lawrence uh, comes to mind because of, of uh, because it's uh, in our in our wheelhouse of books here. Um, the 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 Lawrence book was released very privately and then in in a, repeated editions in very large format um, and is still read today as a good serious study of, of war. Although it's not read in military schools, but it's read by by general readership. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, his interactions in the Middle East and then in India as well kind of brings up the question that some folks ask, you know, was he an imperialist or was he a racist? Uh, which I think, you know, is an interesting question, you know, based on the amount that he, he read, you know, it seems hard to believe that he was actually a racist and tended more towards just, you know, the British tendency to, for imperialism, especially at, at that time, uh, you know, coming towards the end of the, the British Empire. Yes, um, it was it. It was its own. It was its own era, wasn't it? Um, we now think race is about the most important social question there is. Uh, at his day, they had others in mind, um, including labor rights, including suffrage for women. Um, so he was uh, the first part of your question is easy to say. Yes, he was absolutely an imperialist. He thought so well of the empire that after uh, it became the Commonwealth in the late 30s, he still used to re refer to it as the empire. Uh, that's how he wanted to think of it. Famously, he declined to let India go independent. Um, this had nothing to do with race, however, it had to do with his sense for the empire, his sense for what a dominion is, his sense for what an independent country would be. Um, he struggled brutally with many of the Irish over the questions of their status within the empire. And uh, so that clearly didn't have to do with, with skin color. Um, he was around mostly, you know, uh, whites and Anglo-Saxons and European whites uh, and Americans, uh, you know, most of his life. Uh, he didn't make silly statements about having, you know, brown friends, uh, but he didn't have, you know, uh, most, mostly. Um, as to the question of racism, uh, there's a lot said and most of it's unsupported. Uh, most of the comments I've seen are allegations that are not well-founded. Uh, a great historian of the British world named uh, Andrew Roberts did a major investigation of this very recently, and he only found about one case in which he thought Churchill made a what could be called a racial slur. 
Um, I've seen one um, that I think uh, was regrettable. But, you know, this is a public life of 60, 65 years. I mean, 62 in Parliament alone. So it's not uh, surprising that anybody might might slip. Uh, he, um, I think the way he'd like to be remembered on the India case, which is difficult, is that he was a fierce opponent of Gandhi, that he never respected him, but that that changed during his life. Um, when he um, got to know more about Gandhi and realized that he had done a lot um, of, of advocacy for the untouchables, which is not exactly a racial group. It's a, it's a Hindu caste, but there are a couple hundred million of these poor folks. When he realized that Gandhi was a supporter of the untouchables, he, he said publicly how much it improved his view of Gandhi. And a major spokesman for Gandhi came to Chartwell and spent a day with him. And they talked all this out. And the man went away and wrote up Churchill as a real friend to the Indian cause. Um, the last thing I would say is um, uh, if he made some missteps on India, a part of it could just be ignorance. He, he wasn't well enough in tune with India and its aspirations for independence. After he'd been there as a young man and he helped defend the borders, which is good, they should like that. You know, when he left, he never went back. Uh, he didn't visit Australia during his life. Uh, he, he never went back to India. He, he didn't see the rise of Japan very clearly. Uh, he wasn't studying Asia as much as we would like uh, to him uh, to have done. So there was some some ignorance about about Indian politics, and he found it easy to stick in a kind of conventional place, uh, and that cost him with his party. I mean, the Tory party eventually went against him on the India cause. He was he was a minority even within the Conservatives. Yeah, which I think is a great kind of example of why you don't want to necessarily you you, you sort of need to cast a wide net on the things that you study and read about. Uh, but it can kind of, you know, the 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 phrase, uh, um, you know, a jack of all trades. But when you finish that, a master of none. That's what happens when you when you cast a wide net. But then you come into the same problems of, you know, if I don't cast the net wide enough, I don't study, you know, all the things that maybe I do need to to study. Yes, yes. You know, um, there's a, a remarkable incident when he was a young man. He occasionally read some natural sciences. Uh, this is a field in which I'm horrendously ignorant. So he, he read The Origin of the Species by Charles Darwin when he was serving out in India. Um, he read a couple other books, one um, about ants, which he found fascinating, and, and one about bees. Uh, there's, a, there's a book called The Life of the Bee by a guy named Maeterlinck, a, a European. Interesting story. Uh, he, I, I said he's garrulous. Uh, he often was, um, was less than the perfect gentleman in, in female company at dinners as well. Um, uh, he, he went to a proper dinner. Uh, and he was kind of sunk into his own thoughts, and, and the woman beside him tried to engage him in a conversation, wasn't very successful. And Churchill started talking about a book he'd been reading, The Life of the Bee, uh, and he went on and on, I mean, really on and on. And the woman later was just appalled. She thought there was nothing as odd as this man who, who could only talk about 
about one book uh, very well. See, a bad, bad show at the party, Winston. But the interesting thing is that book by Maeterlinck won a Nobel Prize, um, or one of his books did. And of course, Churchill years later won his own Nobel Prize. So if we go backwards in time, you know, that person at the table missed a chance to listen to a Nobel winner talk about another Nobel winner's research uh, and the bee. Um, and since today people think bees are important and maybe a shortfall in the world, uh, it, it actually uh, gives us a different perspective on that unusual conversation. So he did read, he did read widely. Um, and he, he didn't read a lot about animals, but he, he loved animals. He had all kinds of them at Chartwell, and he raised uh, everything from butterflies to geese to fish to pigs. Uh, he, he was uh, quite, quite happy in, a, in an animal's company. So we're closing in on the end of our hour. I just wanted to give you a, an opportunity for any closing comments you wanted to make. Um, I am uh, very pleased to spend this time. Um, if I had only one thing to say, uh, uh, I would I would say that the demands on a person's time when they're in our armed services are very great. There's a lot to do with with physical training, a lot to do with intellectual discipline. Um, many officers I've heard exhort. Uh, uh, young young men and women and the Marines to to be good family people to never forget the family. That's very true, but it's hard when you work for a difficult boss, and you have long days. Um, so I am impressed with the education level of many of our officers. That they often are involved in graduate work at their schools, or they're taking outside school degrees while serving in the Corps. And I respect that a great deal. I think our our officer corps is more highly educated than most citizens understand, and uh, that's that's impressive to me. Um, and so I do hope that uh, that uh, Jim Mattis remains uh, in our in our forefront of our minds. Uh, I did know General Gray, who created our university. I know how widely he read. I remember when uh, the commandant sent every officer in the corps a copy of Sun Tzu which is a book I still teach. Uh, and so these are uh, difficult things to do in terms of the effort uh, and the time involved. But the education of the Marine is very important to me and uh, I hope we keep at it. Thank you, Major. Thank you, sir. Uh, thank you very much for your, your time and your insight coming here to uh, coming back to the broadcast uh, to talk. Uh, thanks to all the folks who joined us in the chat uh, for the conversations we had there and your questions. Uh, so that's all we have for this episode. So go ahead and carry out the plan of the day. Thanks for joining us. As always, we depend on support and feedback from the Team Krulak community to constantly improve our offerings and reach a wider audience. So if you have feedback on this episode, please take a moment to fill out the survey linked in the show notes to help us do better. Also, if you have enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. It truly does help us reach a wider audience. Thank you as always for your support, and we'll see you on the next episode. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.